0: Hey everyone, Calvin Mofield here, and welcome to episode 5 of Calvin the Author's Audiobooks. As always, thank you for coming back to hear me tell another piece of the story. All of my written works are still on Kindle Unlimited for those with that service. I know that Amazon gives away trials of KU for those interested in trying it out. Either way, you could read my written works there for free. I'll leave a link in the notes that lead to all of my written works. Still working hard on Broken Realms Finding Home Tale 5. When it's finished, I'll start the editing process before going to find the cover for it. Maybe I'll put a few choices up on the site so that everyone can vote on them to help me pick the best cover. This podcast contains adult language, situations, and violence. Listener discretion is advised. On the last episode, Max found out that he wasn't truly alone in the world, only to find out that he wouldn't be able to connect with his family. After that, Max arrived at Dez's house for dinner, as he was instructed. While there, Dez got an important phone call that he felt compelled to tell Max about. Des tells Max that his ex-girlfriend Steph had been kidnapped from the soup kitchen. Running on adrenaline and nerves, Max hops into his car, leaving Des alone in his driveway. And that's where we pick up the story in this episode. Chapter 3 I knew driving directly into the parking lot of the soup kitchen was a bad idea, so I parked about three blocks back and two blocks over, hoping that Des wouldn't find my car, if he was looking for it. The soup kitchen itself was housed inside an old 1930s office building. It had dark, red, almost purple brick exterior trimmed in limestone. The cops were already on the scene, so I picked a shadowed corner that gave me a good view without giving away my position, and I waited. The cops spent about an hour asking questions. Des even showed up, but they didn't appear to get much. I could make out a few of the diehard volunteers, but there were a couple of new faces. After the cops left, I waited another hour or so before leaving my hiding spot, just in case Dennis had decided to stick around looking for me, taking another swig out of my flask to keep away the cold. I feel a pang of sadness that it's almost empty. It really wasn't that big a deal. I could be in and out of the soup kitchen in less than 30 minutes. Then it was a short ride for a refill. Suddenly there's a flash of light, and I can feel the muscles in my body flex at the same time. I try to fight it but it feels like I'm on the outside of my body looking in. I fall to the ground as my muscle seize over and over again. Another flash of light, and I'm gone. The roar is deafening. Where before I could only hear muffled sounds, now I could hear the clanging of metal and the yelling of men. As things began to focus, one man's voice in particular rose above the rest. Adrian! Adrian! I could hear the man talking, and I looked to see where the voice is coming from. As I turn my head, I see the raven-colored man from earlier ride up on his horse and stop it in front of me. "'Adrian, my brother, are you ready for the task at hand?' the man asks me. "'Aye, Kalixt. I am ready, my brother.' I tell him, to what sounds like a thick Norse accent. "'Good, good. Then we will show these Saracen dogs to their maker soon enough,' he tells me, clasping my shoulder." I give him a hearty laugh, and even though I know it's me, and my voice, I can tell it's not me. Almost as if I were watching a memory of who I used to be. There's another flash of light, and I'm back. It's early morning. I can tell by the way that the light hasn't yet filtered over the tops of the homes from the east. My body is sore from the seizures and shivering all night. My head pounds from my heart slowing due to the cold and not supplying it with enough blood to keep it warm. I push myself to a sitting position and... Pull the hood of my sweater over my head, then I wait for the world to stop spinning. After about five minutes, I feel like I have enough strength to get back up. I dust myself off and look around. The streets were empty. Not even the school kids were out yet to catch the bus. Probably just as well. The less people I saw, the less likely I'd have to explain what I was doing here. I decided to skip the investigation for now, and instead decide to head back to the car and regroup. I didn't know what I thought I was doing anyways. What did I really think I was going to find last night? I just knew that last night I had to do something because doing nothing was like giving up and I wasn't going to give up on her. In the time it took me to get back to the car, I had come up with a new plan. One that involved breakfast, warming up, and going back to the soup kitchen to ask questions. I might not be a police detective anymore, but that didn't mean I forgot how to do my job. Starting my car, I crank up the heat and think everything holy and otherwise for the sweet relief that came out of the vents and covered my frozen body. When I had finally stopped shivering, I fished my cell phone out of my glove box and checked my messages. Three missed calls from Dez, as well as half a dozen text messages. I scrolled through the messages and, again, felt bad for running out like I did. Most of what he sent just asked me not to do something stupid and to call him as soon as I could. I'd have to call him later. Right now, I was famished. Rosie's Diner had been a favorite of mine since my early days as a cop. Me and the guys would meet here every now and then for lunch because, one, Rosie was a character, and, two, she believed in frying things in lard and making stuff with carbs. It was the kind of place time and modern decor had forgotten. Wood paneling and dusty signs hung on the walls. Between them were a hodgepodge of tables and booths, recycled from other diners that hadn't fared so well. It was the place that time forgot, and I never would. I find an empty table and pull a menu out from between the ketchup and the napkin holder. I already knew what I wanted. I just wanted to look like I was laboring over the decision. It didn't take long, and I felt the smack of an order pad on the back of my shoulder. Well, howdy, stranger, Rosie says with a smile. Where you been all this time? I smile. It really had been a while since I'd been back. Guess I let things fall through my fingers. I've been working mostly. They've been keeping me busy. Who's they? I heard you lost your job with the city, she informed me. Hearing her say that took a little bit of the shine out of my smile. Rosie never was one for sugarcoating things. It's what made her great. She'd just tell you what was on her mind. Yeah, that happened about a year ago, I guess. I got a job running security out at the mall since then. Well, that ain't too bad. Staying out of trouble? She asked. When I can, I tell her. Still with that blonde girl you brought in here all the time? Yeah, still with her, or she's still with me. Either way, we're still together. I lie. Good, she says with a smile. I like that girl. She's good for you. She's still volunteering out at that soup kitchen? I nod my head. Helps manage it now. What's she think about the new owners? Rosie asks. What? That's new. I didn't know there were new owners. I tell her truthfully. She hadn't mentioned it? Rosie asked. I shook my head, looking over at her. No, I didn't know anyone had taken over out there. Happened about a month ago. Some company called Biotech started funding them. Some big PR scheme and a write-off from what I heard, Rosie says. You tell her I said hi, and I want her butt to stop by and see me. I laugh again. You bet, Rosie. I tell her and then order my country fried steak and start doing some serious thinking. First things first. I had to figure out why someone would want to kidnap Steph in the first place. Maybe she got a hold of some information that someone else wanted to make sure never saw the light of day. If that were true, why do it at the soup kitchen? Rosie drops off my steak, fried taters, and a tall glass of sweet tea. I waste no time attacking them with vigor. Between bites, I try to draw conclusions from nothing, and it began to make me wish that I was more of a stalker so that I would have more to go on. Right now, all I had to go on was stale gossip and even staler memories. If I was going to find anything to go on, it was going to be found back at that soup kitchen. I drained the last of the tea from my glass and waved for Rosie to get the bill. She nods and sets it on the table. I pay the bill and leave a generous tip as to say in some small way that I was sorry for taking so long to come back, then make my way back outside. I pull into the parking lot adjacent to the soup kitchen and take my time getting out of the car, not wanting to seem aggressive in any way. Knowing I had no official capacity whatsoever, I'd have to fake it if I was going to get any information. Finally, I open the door and swing my massive frame out into the chilly air and began a slow, deliberate walk toward the front door, all the while taking in the details of the outside. There had been some changes to the building since the last time I'd been here. The plain, nondescript front door had been replaced with a glass-enclosed waiting area, complete with leather sofa and a check-in desk. The top floor, as well, had a similar treatment. And having the four or five small industrial windows replaced with large, mirrored glass that ran most of the length of the floor itself, now that I took a closer look, all the windows were mirrored. I guess mirrored glass saved them on the utility bill. As I walk up to the front of the door, I hear the distinct sound of crunching glass on asphalt beneath my feet. I look down, lifting my foot to do so, and seeing tiny bits of mirrored glass. Some ground of sand, thrown around the ground. Whatever had happened here last night, biotech, had wanted the mess cleaned up fast. Reaching the door, I pulled the handle, figuring it would most likely be locked. But figuring trying wouldn't hurt anything. To my surprise, the door comes open easily. Inside, the air was comfortably warm and smelled faintly of vanilla and cleaning supplies. More cover-up or normal business clean? I couldn't tell for sure. My gut was leaning towards cover-up, though. Waiting for someone to greet me and to ask me my business, I flipped through some magazines on feeding the poor, both here and abroad. When no one comes to greet me, my curiosity gets the best of me, and I try the knob to the door leading out of the waiting area. Again, the door gives way and opens easily. Either these people were the worst at internal security that I had ever seen, or Fortune decided to finally favor me. Neither of those seemed likely, so I decided to be as careful as possible as I snooped around. On the other side of the door, the building took on an almost clinical look. White linoleum floors washed up on light brown walls that were met at the top with a drop tile ceiling. All the doorways were trimmed in different shades of light brown and... The doors themselves seemed to be made of a cherry-stained cedar, at least in color. There were industrial-type metal-framed windows at the end of the hall filtering the morning light that was pouring in on the floor, as well as some of the desks, chairs, and other office equipment decorating the halls. Everything you needed to run an office, with one exception. People. I make my way down the hall and try to look as if I'm looking for someone, or something, just in case I do run into some of the staff. It doesn't seem as though I have much to worry about, as the only echoes I hear in the halls are the steps of my own shoes, and nothing else. As I continue walking, the fear of getting caught gives way to the confidence that I'm alone, and I start to get a little ballsy. First, I try a few door handles to see if they're locked. The first couple held firm, the last one twisted easy and slid open. I glance around the hallway and slide inside. I make quick work of checking through desk drawers and bookshelves and find nothing. As quickly as I entered the room, I exit, check for any newcomers, and continue down the hall. Just when I was beginning to think that the place was empty, I heard sounds coming from one of the side hallways to the main, and I ventured down to see who or what might be making the noise. When I get to the end of the hall, it opens up into a giant cafeteria with lots of folding tables and chairs set side by side. If I had to guesstimate, I would have to say that it sat close to 300 people. The noise I hear seems to be coming from an office, adjacent to the kitchen, which had a light on. I walk into the cafeteria, walking the aisle between tables, and call to whoever might be in there. Hello? Can someone help me? I ask. There's a rustle of paper, and a groan of a desk as someone uses it to push their chair away from it. Scant seconds later, a black man in a light blue dress shirt, red tie, and navy pants is standing at the edge of the kitchen. Looking overprotectively angry at me, he speaks. Who... Are you, and what is your business here? I decided to play the OShucks oh dumb country boy routine on him and try to win him over. Sorry, mister. I wasn't trying to make no one mad. I was just trying to see if I could find someone to help me out, I draw. Help you out? With what exactly? The man asked me, demeanor unchanged. Well, to be honest, I'm a friend of the family of that girl that was taken last night, I tell him with sad honest eyes. They said the police didn't think there was anything they could do for him, so they asked me to help. You were a friend of Stephanie's? The man asked me. Still am, I hope. God willing, you know. I answer him. The man looks out at me, confused, and unsure what to make of me. The police sounded hopeful last night that they would catch the men who broke in and took Stephanie. Why would they tell the family so soon that they couldn't help them? Could be they just want more poles in the water, thinking they might get more bites that way. Reef does strange things to people. Sometimes they lie, I tell them truthfully. They just ask me to look into things, see if my experience and training could find something that the cops might have missed. They don't want to waste time, her time. They, They just want her back. I felt bad running the guilt trip on this guy. It was bad enough that he worked with her and had one of his own kidnapped out from underneath him on the job. Unfortunately... I didn't have the privilege of time and honesty. I needed info, and I needed it fast. Can you help her? He asks. I shrug my shoulders and keep my eyes on him. Well, at this point, having an extra pair of eyes looking for her can't hurt. The man's face softens, and he looks off to the side of the floor while he ponders his decision. And you're a friend of her family's? Yes, sir. For many years now, I tell him. All right, then. I can tell you what I told the police he tells me. I smile. I would appreciate that very much if you did. The man steps out, taking slow, deliberate steps as he plucks the memories from his mind. It was late last night, right after we'd finished with serving dinner. We were in the middle of cleaning up, and Stephanie was washing the pots and pans in the back. The man stares off into the distance as the events played before his eyes. All of a sudden, these three men appeared, knocking over things and intimidating the staff. They said that it would be a shame if the place got trashed, because we wouldn't help them out. I asked them what they wanted, and they told me that if we were smart, we'd let them deal drugs out of the soup kitchen, and that they'd they'd take real good care of us, and make sure nothing bad would happen to us if we did. I gritted my teeth. I hated bullies. Nothing was worse than those who prey on the weak or the peaceful in order to make themselves feel important. I nodded to the man when he looked up at me. Then what happened? They kept breaking things and pushing and grabbing the staff. I thought for a minute I was going to have to give them what they wanted just to get them to leave without hurting anyone. And then I hear this scream. It scared the daylight out of me. I turn to see where the noise is coming from and I see Stephanie running out of the kitchen screaming like a madwoman with one of our large skillets in her hands. She hits one of the guys right upside the head, knocking him out cold and laying his unconscious body flat on the floor. The other two guys are stunned for a minute, not realizing exactly what had happened. She starts threatening them, telling them to leave if they knew what was good for them. When the guy comes to and snatches her legs out from underneath her, the other two pounce on her, taking the skillet away from her and holding her arms. The guy looks sad and starts to slowly rotate his hands one over the other as he manages to finish telling me what happened. It all happened so fast. The biggest of them threw her over his shoulder, and they took off down the hallway, heading back outside. I just froze. I was afraid. Finally, when I figured out what was going on, I chased them outside. But I was too late. All I could do was watch them drive away. I fell for the guy. I really did. I've seen good guys freeze in the face of danger before. It didn't mean that he was a bad guy, or even a coward. It just meant his body didn't know how to react, so it didn't. Did you get a good look at the vehicle? I ask him. That I was able to do, he says, looking me in the eye. It was a late-model, dark-colored Ford Explorer with one of those sound systems in it. It had lights in the back that moved with the music. "'Finally. Something I could use. "'I could check with local shops and see if there were any dark-colored explorers "'with custom light and sound displays that have been installed in the last few months. "'I nod to the gentleman to show my appreciation for what he's told me. "'Thank you, Mr. Stewart,' he replies. "'I nod again. Mr. Stewart, thanks again. I'll put this information to good use. "'I hope so, young man, for Stephanie's sake,' he replies. "'I nod. I'll best be going.' I tell him, making my way back down the hallway, through the waiting room door, and out into the parking lot. I smiled as I got in my cutlass. She'd fought them. She had fought to make the others safe. My heart ached with the memory of her and the love that it still carried. Calvin the Author's audiobooks is protected by a Creative Commons Attribution No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Music on the podcast was provided by Alpha Brutal. You can find out more about the author on his website at calvintheauthor.wordpress.com, as well as find him on Facebook by searching Calvin the Author, or on Twitter, at Calvin the Author. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my work, and I look forward to sharing more of it with you next week.